Thank you, John. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles. I, uh, I am so privileged to have with me today a dear, dear old friend. Uh, Dr. Mick Borsma from seminary has come out here. He, he and his precious wife, Rolaine, I'm, can I do this, please? Forgive me. Would you stand up? I just want to honor them. They meant so much to me when I first started seminary. Uh, you guys were instrumental in me surviving school <laughs> and thriving since in ministry. Thank you so much. I am so blessed to have them here. Uh, I, there was one part of me that says, I, I know that I can't preach half as well as Mick. Maybe I ought to ask him to preach. And, and then I thought, yeah, that, what kind of vacation is that? You'll be preaching from church to church. Well, that's not vacation either. Uh, so I will do my best uh, before the Lord to share with you what God has laid on my heart. Actually, I'm going to share with you what, uh, what God himself allowed to be written and preserved in his word today. In chapter 4, we got... We, you've already known this, but Paul's life is drawing to a close. He's been arrested and blamed. He and Peter both blamed in part for the burning of Rome in 64. They, Nero laid that at the feet of the Christians, having served an incendiary God. They said, is not their God a God of fire? And so he blamed them. So Paul is awaiting execution in Rome. He's in the Mamertime dungeon in the winter of 67 A.D., approaching he writes one final letter, not to, a, not to the churches, but to his dearest son, Timothy, in the faith. This, to me, is, one, is the most heart-touching of all of Paul's epistles, certainly the most, the most precious. And, and I feel like Paul's not just discipling Timothy, although he never uses the word. That's what he does, and I feel that I like Paul is, is discipling me, just going through this. In fact, can I encourage you to see your daily Bible study that way? Every time you open a book, just visit with God. He wants to disciple you one-on-one. -on -one. Let His Word find its way into your heart, into your soul. Speak to Him. Let Him speak to you. Uh, that's what His Word does for me, where He disciples uh, me one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, in the many years I've been senior pastor of this church, the, the, probably the greatest compliment I ever got was by a fly fisherman who came to, to church. Uh, this was many years ago now, and, and he came up to me. Rick Tarragon was his name. Sweet, sweet man. And he said, Pastor Jim, I feel like every time you teach the Bible, you're not a preacher. Well, I knew that. I don't have the gift of preaching, but I love teaching God's Word. He said, every time you teach, it seems like you're discipling me one-on-one, -on -one and I'm the only guy in the room. And I thought, that's the neatest thing I ever heard in my whole life. And that's the way I'd like everybody uh, to feel every single time. It's not me trying to step on your toes. Oh, God knows. That would be the last thing in the world I would want to do. But sharing God's word with you puts you in touch with him. So I kind of hide behind the cross. You don't want to hear from Jim Methridge today, but you really want to let God's word meet you right where you are at, whether you're tired or weary or excited, on fire, young, old, rich or poor, we all have, have an issue. So as Paul writes this last letter, this heartfelt letter of his, I just want you to breathe in the Word of God. Breathe in and accept as your own Paul's view of the afterlife and how his journey was coming to an end. 
I love this personal letter. Timothy is indeed his protege and now his successor in ministry. Young Timothy, maybe he's 30 years of age by this point in time. Paul had just been instructing his young Paduan, and for the, those of you that are into Star Wars theology, to preach the Word of God, being instant in season and out of season to correct. What's he to correct? False teaching. There was plenty of it in the first century. There still is today. He was told to rebuke as necessary. What do you rebuke? Only unrepented of persistent sin. The guy who has tripped and stumbled one time is not the person you want to whip and beat and guilt trip and shame and throw out of your church. But the person who is unrepentant, persistent in his sin, and arrogant in his attitude, the pastor needs to gently come alongside of, like Galatians 6 one says, gently, lest we also be tempted. There, there, church discipline needs to be done differently today than it is typically seen. He also told Timothy, be sure to exhort. Other translations have the word encourage, and it comes from the root parakaleo, which means to come alongside of. But sometimes what they need is a kick in the seat of the pants. That's exhortation. And sometimes they just need you to come alongside of them like you would a guy who had a bad knee just helping him to walk. And that would be encouragement. But the one word covers both bases, depending on the on the, what is needed at the time. Now, Paul had told Timothy, I, I'm warned, that in the last days, that is the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, that is the last days, that they were going to be terrible times. Remember he said that back in chapter 3 and verse 1? Going to be terrible times. I don't know what you expect these last days, but I encourage you, expect the worst. Pray that it doesn't happen, but expect the worst. And he outlines, I'll refer you back to chapter 3 to study it again for yourself or pick up our notes online or in the, uh, the Connect Center. But what he said in a nutshell is that society would become increasingly hedonistic and narcissistic. Here's the definition of those words. Hedonistic means obsessed with the pursuit of pleasure and entertainment. Does that describe the world we live in today or not? It's a hedonistic society, and it seems to be getting worse instead of better. Narcissism, what is that? Absolute self-centeredness, where you are the center of the universe. Your feelings matter more than anybody else's on planet Earth. Your joy, peace, happiness, that's, that's paramount to every other consideration in life. Happy? Are you happy? And people pursue it endlessly. It's extreme self-centeredness, and these people were surrounded on top of that by false teaching. And so, Timothy was to meet this false teaching head-on with what? The Word of God. The Word of God. And that's why I encourage you to study to show yourself approved, as Paul told Timothy. Study the Word of God. Get a good study Bible. What translation? Uh, get a good translation. There are so many of them out there today. As long as you avoid the Mormon Bible and the Jehovah's Witness Bible, you're in good shape. There's plenty of other good ones out there. Avoid those like, like the plague, though. The Word of God is able to change you from the inside out. It says in chapter 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, what does all mean in Greek for the scholars that are out there? What does all mean? You guys, you're amazing. You're just amazing. 
All Scripture is God-breathed. I am, dis I am disturbed by modern-day pastors. You know them. They are rich. They are famous, have megachurches that say, the Old Testament is irrelevant. We don't study it. I don't encourage the people to read it. Really? Isn't all Scripture God-breathed and, and suitable for correction, reproof, and training in righteousness? All Scripture? To leave out the Old Testament is to leave out three quarters of the holy and inspired Word of God. Why would you do that? We understand that the Old Testament gives us the view of things leading up to the coming of the Messiah. It was a law-based system that we praise God we're not under today. We're saved by grace. We walk by grace, kept by grace. But quite frankly, the only Bible Jesus ever quoted was the Old Testament. Why wouldn't you read it? The only Bible that that was quoted by Paul or any of the apostles was the Hebrew Old Testament Scriptures, sometimes quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek version of it, which was great because I'm not so good with the Hebrew. I'm better with Greek in, in looking at those passages. But I find God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you believe that? Some people read the Old Testament and say, well, he, the God back there had some anger management issues. He just kind of nuked everybody and condoned warfare. And, and in the New Testament, somehow or another, it transformed uh, from, from harsh legalism and killing everybody to ooey-gooey, uh, sloppy agape. What happened? Now we've got some kind of effeminate God over here who kind of accepts everything and doesn't hold anybody accountable. Well, Jesus came bringing us grace and love and mercy. Thank God. Thank God we are no longer under the law. That doesn't give us license to sin. It gives us license to serve, license to love, license to, to seek Him with all of our heart and mind and, and soul and strength. Timothy had a spiritual gift and a calling of an evangelist. His mission was to preach, keruso, to proclaim the gospel to the lost and to teach the application of God's Word to the saved. I'm a pastor teacher by the will of God. Sometimes it makes me feel like I'm a one-string banjo. But I, I think that God wants me to play my one-string banjo with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I'm a pastor teacher by the will of God. It's the only card I got. Well, Pastor Jim, how come you don't have an invitation every Sunday? A, I don't find it anywhere in the Bible. That's the primary reason. Secondly, we'll have an invitation to come up front and pray every time God lays it on my heart by the power of His Holy Spirit. That's not a problem. And thirdly, the altar is open to you any time at all during the church service to come up and pray. So don't think that I'm here to, to help or hinder your communication with God. This is all between you and God now. People who walk out of the church say, I didn't get anything out of the service. How much did you put into it? What did you bring to the table? Did you open up your heart and say, Lord, here am I. Speak for your servant listens, like little Samuel in the temple. I think what you get out of a church service is directly proportional to what you bring. You bring the right spirit. You bring the right attitude. Are you willing? Are you receptive? Is the heart wide open? Sometimes that means allowing God to step on your toes. Because Unless you're perfect, of course. I could be wrong. Is anybody perfect in the room? Then, then, then don't. Don't chafe when God brings it to your attention. Just say, I know I need to change. I need to learn. I need to grow. God loves us all, accepts us as, as we are, but loves us too much to leave us as we are. Yeah, thank God. I'm, I'm with you on that one, sister. Amen. 
Paul's execution was imminent. He knew it, and, and he so desired to encourage the, his son in the faith, Timothy, by handing off his ministry. And quite frankly, it really mimics the transition in ministry between Elijah in the Old Testament, 1 Kings, and his handing his ministry off to Elisha in 2 Kings. There was that, that transition from one to the other, and, and God did amazing things. You all should read that transition sometime uh, because God's work has carried on ever since. You know, Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire, horses of fire. It was an amazing thing. And then his cloak fell from heaven, and Elisha picked it up and said, I guess I got his, his ministry now. He watched him ascend. So he went to the Jordan River, and he hit the Jordan River as he had seen his old master do. And he said, where now is the God of Elijah? And God parted the Jordan River for him. And everybody saw that, and, whoa, the spirit that was on Elijah is now on Elisha. The spirit that was on Paul is now on Timothy. The spirit of Christ is now upon you, and you, and you, and you. That hasn't changed. You have the same Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ did. Isn't that amazing that he would do that? He gave you and I the same Holy Spirit upon Jesus. And you go, well, I can't do miracles like he did. That's not your calling. You're not called to come and die on a cross and be the Son of God. You have a unique calling. It'll, it's very specific to you as it was to Timothy. He wasn't a pastor teacher so much as he was an evangelist. And I think that was glorious. And you look at somebody like Paul who seemed to have such a wide variety of spiritual gifts, but the same Holy Spirit. Now, do you believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and well today? Or did the Trinity somehow become a duality and he got left out of the end times game or something? The Holy Spirit, isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Then the same Holy Spirit infuses His church today. And until that which is perfect comes, we who are imperfect will still need His gifts, His power, His calling. That's all the spiritual gifts are. The spiritual gifts are not given so you can act weird. Some people think that as well. I'm bouncing on a trampoline. I'm barking at the moon and chasing cars, and that's the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. Switch to decaf. You'll be okay. <laughs> the Holy Spirit imparts the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He imparts the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And quite frankly, whatever individual or multiple numbers of spiritual gifts you have, what I really want to see out of you and God wants to see out of me is fruit. It is interesting that in the original language it says the singular fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's all of these things that follow, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did I just describe you? Because I did just describe Jesus. Now, Paul was, was moving in that direction, Timothy the same way. So you and I should hunger and thirst for more of what God wants to give us freely. You can't learn it in school. You can't buy it in a Christian bookstore. can't even learn it in church. But as you get in touch with God, you get in touch with the heart of God. And you start learning what God has for you in life. And you'll spend the rest of your life following that path. And it's a glorious journey. You know what life is to me? Life is a whitewater rafting trip. Have you ever been on a whitewater rafting trip? How many of you have? We live in Colorado. Come on. You half of you? Boy, are you silly. Did you know what you were getting into? You thought you did. <laughs> but there was moments, tell me, George, there was moments you were scared. 
Yeah, going over the waterfalls. Yeah, scary. Bashing on the rocks, people bailing out of the raft. The one thing I did when I went down on, on rafting a, a five, which is considered unraftable in Colorado, went down this section of uh, Royal Gorge. We're all wearing helmets and the big padded suits so you don't crush your ribs when you bail out of the boat. And there's, there's waterfalls and there's, there's every imaginable horror you can imagine. Everybody on this side of the boat is, is stroking in six different directions. And everybody over here is stroking in six different directions. It looks like pandemonium and chaos. And they're all freaking out. Ah! They're screaming. They're crying. My, I'm dying like my child is dying or something. And I look back at the guy in the back of the boat. He's as calm as a cucumber. And I thought, what's wrong with you? We're all freaking out. Don't you understand? We're all dying here. We're all drowning here. We're all, and we need to eat soon, too. <laughs> you know I mean? We haven't had lunch yet. And, and he's back there. He's got one oar. And he's... You know what his key is? He'd been down that same river a thousand times. He knew what was around the next bend. He wasn't upset. He had it all figured out, knew exactly the way, what he was going to do. This, remember when Jesus was in the back of the boat? And all his disciples were freaking out. He's asleep on a cushion in the back. I like that. That's like Pastor Jim stretched out on the front row before the start of service taking a snooze. <laughs> you know? You're thinking, oh, that's weird. Well, no, Jesus knew that our Heavenly Father holds you and I right there. He has the hairs of your head numbered, which gets to be an easier chore as you get older. <laughs> he's, got, he's got the hairs of your head numbered like who cares? He does. He knows you. He loves you. He's got it. He's got everything that you face today. He's got it under control. He's already got it figured out. He's got a plan. You just need to find out what it is. How do you find out? Ask, seek, knock. Hmm. Ask, seek, and we're going to touch on that here in just a minute. But let's pick up the text in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, shall we? Paul says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. He knows that his death is imminent. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. That includes you and me. We just, got, we just found our names on the page of Scripture here. Isn't that, isn't that something? That's glorious. Paul says, if we could back up to verse 6, poured out like a drink offering. And Paul was fond of that metaphor. He'd used it before in speaking to the church at Philippi. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering, he said, on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice in all of you. A drink offering. What's the background to that? It goes all the way back to Exodus. Part of the daily offerings on the altar in Moses' day was wine, that was to be poured out as a drink offering. And you can exercise uh, your right to study that in, in Exodus 29. In Numbers, interestingly enough, chapter 28, verse 7, it says the drink offering to the Lord, it's mentioned again as specifically being fermented wine. Fermented wine. <clears throat> it would pour it out. And it was a perfect picture. <clears throat> I think a better picture in Scripture exists, though, I remember when David, uh, he was hiding from the Philistines. They had taken over his hometown, Bethlehem. 
And, and Beth, David was saying to his troops around him, his mighty men, as, the, as Scripture calls him, he goes, oh, man, I would give anything just to have a sip from the, uh, the well at Bethlehem, my hometown where I grew up as a kid. You know, if I, oh, to have a drink from back there, to, to remember those, those times before the Philistines. He so desired that. Bethlehem had been his birthplace. And three of his mighty men, I love this about these guys, they decided, well, don't tell David, but we're going to sneak in uh, to Bethlehem at, by, at night and get him a drink of water from that well and bring it back in, in a skin. And, and David thought that that was so precious and himself so unworthy that he poured it out on the ground before the Lord. What was that? That was a drink offering. He, he thought his men so precious to them and their act so heroic and so selfless. How could I not give that to God? And that's what David did. And I think that's the best example. And I think that's what Paul had in mind. I'm, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He doesn't ask for our sympathies. He says, what I'm doing actually is simply giving my life completely and totally to God. Paul didn't see himself as, a, as going to his, his execution. He thought of himself as offering every facet of his life to God. Think about that. Ever since his conversion, he'd offered God everything. He'd given God everything, his money, his education, his titles, his time, the strength of his body, the sharpness of his mind, the devotion of his heart. Only his physical beating heart, his life, was the last thing that he had to give to God. And he says, so I give it. I give it freely. I hold back nothing from the God who gave me everything. Jesus held back nothing. He gave it all for you and me. Is it asking too much for us to give him all of our dreams, hopes, goals, aspirations? You know, Paul said, I died with Christ. I think before we can enjoy the resurrection life, we have to be willing to die. Die to the things of this world. Die to the hedonism and narcissism that we find so rife through society today. The violence, the corruption. Is, is your life poured out like a drink offering? Have you done that lately? Where you, you just, it might not be a bad idea to take a glass of water at home. Get alone with God out in the backyard or someplace that's private and pour it out and say, Lord, this is a symbol, but I, I pour out my life to you. I withhold nothing. All of my finances, my health, my heart, my children, my grandchildren, all that I am and ever hope to be, I pour out before you a living sacrifice. That pleases the Lord. That pleases the Lord so much. Like, like David longed to taste the water from the well at Bethlehem and then poured it out before the the Lord, I think that's exactly what he asks of you and I. What's God want from you? Everything. What's God need from you? Nothing. This doesn't enrich God. It blesses you. It enriches you. But understand the great translation that took place when Christ died on the cross. He took all of your sins. He imputed to you all of his righteousness. He didn't have to do that. He forgave all of our sins. The call of the cross is a call to come and die. And you have to do that fresh every day because the clutter of the world gets in the way. You have to understand you are first and foremost, above all else in life, you are a child of God. 
Every morning, build your altars. Open up the Word of God. Keep a little journal if that is your habit. And pour out your heart to Him afresh. Every Sunday morning before I ever spend a moment looking at my notes, I have my quiet time. And for me, there has to be a quality and a quantity of time involved in that. If I can't have a solid hour and a half with the Lord, don't feel like I've given Him enough of, of my time. I don't want to give God the last of my day. I want to give Him the best, the first, the first fruits of my day. So I had a wonderful time with the Lord, and I think then prepared me to jump into 2 Timothy chapter 4. But you want to build your altars on a daily basis. How often were the sacrifices given in the time of Moses? Every day. Doesn't Romans 12, 1 and 2 say, present yourselves as a living sacrifice to God? Yeah, that's, that's, that is, re is required of us. He points out that he's in verse 6, he said, the time has come for my departure. Paul knew that he was going to be executed soon. This might be his very last opportunity to encourage Timothy in the ministry. And it is interesting to me how death appears to Paul. It's simply a departure. And I think how many times Paul had gotten on a ship and taken off from a port. They'd loose the ropes and he had set sail. And that's the term that he uses here. It's nothing to be feared. There's no danger. I'm not afraid of death in any sense at all. He says, for me, it's my final departure. I've sailed from so many ports on his, his three, four different missionary journeys. If, in fact, tradition is correct that he took a fourth missionary trip as far as Spain and perhaps as far as Britain. But the three that he took had him come and go out of so many different seaports. And that's the term he uses here for his departure. That's ah, just one more leg in the journey. It's the last leg, but that's okay. It's just, a, it's just a natural part of the journey of life. Don't freak out. Don't worry. The word he uses, departure, what a vivid term. It, it has so many a picture in it, and it tells us something about leaving this life. This is the word that is used for unyoking an animal from the bars of a cart or a plow. The same word, departure. Death to Paul was a rest from toil. Have you ever got into bed at night and said, this feels so good. Have you ever said that? Every night. I mean, if you're over 60, you say that every night. To get horizontal is just a little slice of heaven. You know, get off your feet and, oh, this feels so good. Well, that's what Paul was saying. That's the word that he uses here. I'm freed from the toil. As one commentator put it, ease from toil. Port after a stormy sea, death after life. These are lovely things. These are lovely things. Secondly, it's the word for loosening bonds or fetters, like you would have on a prisoner. So Paul sees death as a release from bondage. I'm unshackled. I'm no longer limited by the limitations of this flesh. I mean, when you're 20, you think you'll never die. When you're, when you're 70, you know that you're going to. And you want to be prepared for that spiritually and otherwise. But there is a decline in physical strength and health and testosterone levels and thyroid. Everything else has kind of been moving downhill instead of uphill. But that's okay. Every roller coaster gains speed going downhill. So it's not all bad. 
But I want to keep in mind this is part of God's natural progression. These bodies can't live forever. They can't live forever. So quite frankly, what you die of is, doesn't matter at all. God knows the very hairs of our head. He's got the days of our lives numbered. That's not a big deal. I don't want any pain involved when I die. It would be kind of nice to do one of those go to bed and wake up and see Jesus. That would be cool. I'm not fond of pain. Nobody is. But I find that if it is necessary, as it was for the apostles, as it was for Paul, as it was for Timothy, I'll embrace pain all day long. Whippings, beatings. Didn't Jesus take that for us? Those things, these things shall not move me, Paul said in the book of Acts. You just got to face life that way. COVID, these things shall not move me. Old age, these things shall not move me. Getting fired from, these things shall not move me. You've got to look at life that way. Why, why can you, how can you say that, Pastor Jim? These things that shake everybody else in the world, how can it not move you? I'm standing on solid ground. I got rock beneath my feet. I don't stand on shifting sands. You ever been to the beach bare toed? Stick your feet in the water and tide comes in, and pretty soon you're sinking and you're sinking and you're sinking. You know? Well, that's, that's building your house on shifting sand. And Jesus said, only a fool does that. Build your house on solid rock. Christ Himself. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's right. That's the foundation of your life. So when death's door is staring at me, I'm going to see the ropes are being slipped from the dock, and I'm on my final voyage. Not a big deal. Something, quite frankly, to be looked forward to. Thirdly, the word departure was used for loosening the ropes of a tent. For Paul, it was time to break camp again. The nation of Israel, they did it for 40 years in the wilderness. They broke camp as often as God. Sometimes they'd stay a day, a week, a month, a year. Didn't matter. But they didn't move until the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire moved. Well, that's how you and I should approach this journey called life. Don't move until God says so. But when God says so, move. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Scripture isn't, uh, it's not obtuse. It kind of says what it means, means what it says. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand that. Follow the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. It's just time to break camp again. And I think of all of the journeys that Paul had taken, all of the stopovers along his journeys throughout the roads of Asia Minor, Europe, and now he's setting out on, on his last and final and greatest adventure. And that's the fourth use of the term translated from the Greek, departure. It's the word for loosening those mooring ropes of a ship at dock. And, and Paul had often left the safety of a harbor and sailed out into the deep unknown. A fearsome Mediterranean sea would often swamp ships if you attempted a crossing in the wrong time of the year. He was about to launch out now into the greatest, deepest adventure of all. He's setting sail, sail over the waters of death, the great unknown, to arrive in the safe harbor of heaven itself. This is the great adventurous. Remember that song from Stephen Curtis Chapman a dozen years ago or so? This is the great... I turned it up last night, and I, I like to turn my computer speakers up to... Well, they only go up to 10, but I wish it had a 12 setting on it because that is just such an encouraging song. I see all of life as a great adventure and moving past this life into the next, the greatest adventure at all. And that's what the term that, that Paul uses here. William Barclay in his Daily Bible series 
uh, said this, quote, So then for the Christian, death is laying down the burden in order to rest. It is laying aside the shackles and the chains in order to be free. It is striking camp in order to take up residence in a heavenly place. It is casting off ropes which bind us to this world in order to set sail on the voyage which ends in the presence of God. Isn't that a glorious quote? Take the gander at verse 7 here, would you? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And Paul's looking back over 30-plus years of ministry at this point. He was saved about the year 35 A.D. He's executed in the winter uh, that straddled the years 67 and 68 A.D., at least 33 years of faithful ministry. And then it hit me. I'm pastoring this church now for the 33rd year, just this past September. 33 years that Paul pastored. And I, I just thought that was an amazing coincidence that just kind of shook me. As God reminded me, the only thing that matters, Jim, is faithfulness. Be faithful to the end. Don't look at other ministries, other churches. They come and go. Pastors come and go. doesn't bring my heart any joy uh, to see them come and go. But steadfastness is a quality that characterized Paul's life. I want it to characterize mine. When God called me into the ministry 40 years ago, he told me, Jim, this is the only church you're ever going to pastor. I was good with that. I think that sheep enjoy the stability of a steadfast shepherd. I mean, if you show up at church and you don't know who's going to be in the pulpit that day, pretty soon the sheep are looking for greener pastures. They like to see steadfastness. So a steadfast pastor can require steadfastness of his people. As Jesus was steadfast to the very end, as Paul was steadfast to the very end of his ministry, as Pastor Jim is going to stay as steadfast to you as I possibly can, so I want you to be steadfast in Christ Jesus. I think the closer you stay to him, the better you'll, this will all turn out for all of us. Stay steadfast. I was talking with, with Mick before service, and, and most churches in town that I'm aware of, there's over 400 uh, churches in Colorado Springs. The vast majority of pastors I've talked to said, yeah, COVID uh, stopped all church attendance there for a while, and only half of the people ever came back. Well, didn't Paul tell the Thessalonian church in Second Thess Thessalonians there was, be a, there was going to be a great falling away, hey, apostasia, before Christ came back? Is it possible that we're seeing that today as people say, nah, I don't need church anymore. I don't need God anymore. I don't need to read the Bible. And they just left. And you call them and you encourage them and you bless them and you try to say, you, guys, come on, you know the Word of God says. Hebrews, don't forsake the gathering together yourselves. Ah, I don't think I need church anymore. I do. I need church. I need church desperately. So you have my word. I'll keep these church doors open as long as God allows. I will preach to one person as heartily as I will preach to 1,000. Doesn't matter to me. God didn't ask me to count heads. He asked me to feed sheep. You hear that? I mean, how many sheep have to show up before a pastor thinks it's important enough to feed them? I mean, if only one of your kids showed up for dinner, you're going to say, sorry, kid, I'd feed you, but I don't know where your brothers and sisters are at, so go home, go, go away hungry. You'd feed whatever kid showed up at the table. That's just common sense. 
Well, pastors should do that. I had one tell me a while back, well, I'm closing my church because I only got 400 people after two years of service. I said, what? Are you kidding me? Nine out of ten pastors would die to have a church of 400 people in two years. That's unbelievable. And he walked away because he said, that's just not enough for me. Well, how many, feed, how many sheep have to show up before you think it's important enough to feed them? Some people in ministry are in it for the wrong reasons. Be faithful to the calling that God's laid on your heart, regardless if it costs you your very life. They stoned Paul to death. What did he do? Got right back up, went back into the town that had stoned him to death, telling him about Jesus all over again. You know, do I have a mark on my forehead here where they crushed my skull with a rock? God did amazing things, but he, I noticed that he's a faithful, a faithful Christian, and he's going to bring that out. He says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, agonizomai. Agonize, that's what we get the word from. I've been agonizing my whole ministry on behalf of the church, but doing it to struggle. I've competed as if for a prize. I've contended with the adversary, and he'd spent 30 years doing this, and he didn't burn out. Can I tell you in ministry, God doesn't care if you burn out or rust out. You're out either way. Burnout means that I've got some misplaced priorities going on. I don't see Jesus one time out going, oh, I'm so stressed. I don't know if I can do this anymore. These crowds, all they want is food and fish. How many lepers do I have to heal? Jesus didn't burn out. He didn't rust out. Like Paul, he had that same passionate fire to the very end. If we're burning out or rusting out, we're doing something in ministry very wrong. We're certainly not doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't say, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll bust your chops. He didn't say that. So I think the closer we get to Christ, the more we realize I need to stay there. I mean, you became a child of God by putting yourself at the foot of the cross. Don't leave. Don't leave. That's right where He wants you. Humble, teachable, on your knees. No pride, no arrogance. Faithfulness is what comes out of that. A fresh baptism of love and joy and peace and patience as often as you need it or want it. It is available to you like a drink of living water. Ah, sometimes there's just nothing so refreshing as a drink of living water. This is only sermon punctuation material here, so. God is good. Say amen. Amen. All day long, all the time. Now, there is a store for me, he says in verse 8. Oh, yeah. I'm moving towards my first conclusion. <laughs> first of many. Uh, now, there is in store for me, Paul says, verse 8, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But not just to me only, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. That is you and I in a nutshell. Crown here, the word I expected to find was Stephanos, the victor's crown, generally a plated little ivy wreath that was placed on the head of a victorious athlete by the reigning Nero or king or or whatever Caesar was on. This is not a diadem. That's the king's crown. Only Jesus wears that. Yeah. 
I'm more than content to have a plated wreath put upon my head. And then I got to thinking because uh, of the passing of Queen uh, Elizabeth II of England, I noticed that on her coffin that was being brought uh, through the streets, that on top of the coffin they had the imperial state crown that she wore. This was just her day-to-day crown. This wasn't the fancy one. This is just the day-to-day crown. They, she had a special one just for her coronation that dated back over a thousand years and had more, more stuff in it than and you could possibly put on your head and hold up. But the, her day-to-day crown uh, that she wore was on top of her casket. Uh, it has a five-pound frame of solid gold. It's encrusted with 2,868 diamonds, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, 269 pearls, and 4 rubies. It's estimated to be worth between 3.5 and 5.5 billion dollars. Contains the Cullinan II diamond that weighs 317.4 carats. And that is not the largest diamond in the crown jewels of England by far. It's interesting, though, that of all of the crowns, all of the crowns that all of the English monarchs have ever worn, every one of them, without exception, is topped with a Christian cross. And do you know why? It acknowledged their power was derived from and given by God, and to Him they were accountable. Isn't that an amazing statement? Every crown they ever had, it always had the cross of Jesus on top of it. There are several crowns mentioned in the Scripture, the crown of righteousness, crown of glory, of life, soul winner's crown, a crown of salvation, a crown of blessing, a crown of splendor. <laughs> Proverbs 16 says, gray hair is a crown. Huh? Got most of you beat there, which could have only been written, of course, by an old guy. Only an old guy would say that. Grandchildren are said to be a crown. Yeah, I already knew that. <laughs> I didn't have to read Proverbs 17 to have that. They are a precious crown to me. The crown of everlasting joy, Isaiah 35. Jesus wore the most famous of all crowns, crown of thorns. Crown of thorns, not nearly as fancy as the Queen of England's crown, but he wore a crown of thorns for you and I so that we might have a crown of our own someday, not made of thorns, but the winner's crown, the victor's crown, the Stephanos, that we could lay down at his feet when we stand before him. In Revelation 4.10, says, All of the saints were laying down their crowns before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and the one most spectacular crown, or crowns, plural, are found in Revelation 19. Jesus is wearing them. In, in Revelation 19, verse 12, Jesus wears a diadem, not a Stephanos. That's for you and me. The diadem is the ruler's crown. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many royal crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. That is the only reason you need to be in the Word of God daily. Jesus so identifies himself with John when you know that passage. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word, what? Was God. Why would you not be in the Word of God daily? That's where you meet the King of the universe. And notice in verse 8 that Paul says, also for all who have longed for Jesus appearing. You know the word longed there? The stem of that is agape. Do you love 
the idea that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Agape is the root of that. Blew me away when I, when I saw that. Do you love, do you long with all of your heart for his second coming? I sure do. Some people go, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm quite ready to go. What do you got, like a bucket list or something? You haven't fulfilled it? What, what is your deal? You think you're afraid of giving up something on earth so you can go to heaven? You think you're going to show up in heaven going, whoa, if I'd have just had one more roller coaster ride, or if I could have watched those Broncos just one more time. Nobody does that in heaven. I don't know what we're uh, afraid of or reluctant to do. Maybe we're like Lot's wife who looked back at Sodom and Gomorrah. It's something she was leaving behind when the angels were trying to lead her on. Turn to a pillar of salt. All who have longed for, loved his appearing. He's finishing his race. He's got a wreath in mind. Ask any athlete. What matters most is not how you start the race, but how you finish. How you finish. The battle does not always go to the swift, Ecclesiastes 9.11 says. It goes to the steadfast. The long-distance runner, not the, not the sprinter, long-distance runner. There was an 800-meter race one time in Texas in 1968 at the Texas State Finals. And I saw this runner who was a normal quarter-mile runner, a 440 runner, who was, because another guy came up lane, asked, asked to run double that distance to run the 880-yard dash. And the runner said, sure, and so the coach set him up, and this guy took off like a rifle shot. And at the 400-yard mark, he was 30 yards ahead of everybody else in the pack. He led the race, and everybody thought, oh, great, that's awesome. Look at that runner go. He's going to set a new record. And then he started slowing down. He got slower and slower and slower and slower until every single other runner passed him up by the time they finished the race at the 880. It doesn't matter how you start. It matters how you finish. Do you know that runner's name? Jim Etheridge. I was that runner. Nobody had taught me that in a longer race than I was used to running, you have to pace yourself. If you don't pace yourself, you will rust out or burn out. And God doesn't want you to do either one, and Satan will settle for either one. You need to understand who you're up against. This is spiritual warfare. Pace yourself. I learned that well in 1968. I've learned it since. And I feel as great about ministry today as the day I started it. I just love ministry. I love people. I love the sheep. I love studying. I love books all over my desk. I love rounding. I just dig that stuff, man. To me, it's exciting. And then to get to share it with you, wow, that's just so cool. I, I, I just love it. Uh, and I think I praise God for all of that. Where God guides, God provides. My pastor Chuck Smith was always telling me that. Let me give you another example of a man who didn't finish so well either, though he started out well. Listen carefully. He writes, Our heart, reason, history, and the work of Christ convince us that without Him we cannot achieve our goal and that without Him we are doomed by God and only Christ can save. Now, that's pretty deep words and sensitive thinking for a 17-year-old kid. 
It revealed a spiritual depth that is not found in most 17-year-olds, to be sure. He'd been baptized into the Lutheran church in 1824 at the age of six, was confirmed at the age of 16, and to graduate from high school, he'd been required to write an essay on some religious subject. And he chose to explore, quote, the name of his paper was, The Union of Believers with Christ According to St. John's Gospel. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 14. An exposition on, on the basic essence, its absolute necessity, and its consequences. Wow. You know who wrote that? Karl Marx, the founder of socialism and communism. But by 1844, only nine years later, he had abandoned any Christian devotion he may have once felt. In fact, his militant atheism and philosophical idea of man's struggle for a classless utopia free from the constraints of orthodox religion established him as one of the fathers of modern-day socialism and communism. And socialism, mark this carefully, wherever socialism and communism have been planted as a governmental system of belief, it has been an epic fail everywhere it's been tried. Why in God's name would we want to bring socialism into American government? You want to run from that as far as you can. If you doubt me, study history just a little bit, just a little bit. Every single place socialism has been tried on the planet, it has been an epic fail and resulted ultimately in the collapse of that nation. We do not want that in America. Sad. Could it happen to us that we could start out well but not finish well? Yeah. Can it happen to our children? Do you know of any teenagers or 20-somethings that have walked away from the Lord? Paul started out well, and at the end of his 30-plus year ministry, he stated that he'd finished well. Not all do. It's easy to start out well but not finish well. Not everybody does that. Keep a steady pace. Study to show thyself approved. Paul had exhorted Timothy previously. Be in the Word of God, please, daily. Pray, fellowship, worship. Ask, seek, and knock. And keep on asking and seeking and knocking. <laughs> As the present participles of that passage properly and precisely point out, and I, I ran out of peas. I couldn't put any more peas in that sense. But they are. They're present participles in that passage that point out that you have to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. The door will be opened. Keep on, keep on at it. Verse 9, do, do your best to come to me and quickly for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me in God Thessalonica. Mm. Know how many associate pastors I've gone through? <laughs> uh, it's always a heartbreak when they do because most of them leave for reasons that were not directed by God. Sometimes they just get tired of the ministry. I had one of them tell me, I hate you, I hate your church, I hate the people, and I hate my job. And so I said, well, I think you're in the wrong place. I think maybe you ought to look for, you know, something else that would make you a little happier, obviously. I don't know what the problem is, but we can pray together about that and help you navigate that. 
The next morning I came in and his keys were on the desk and I never saw him again. That's not the way you do that. Come on. Demas, because he, verse 10, has loved this world, has deserted me, gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatea, as it's pronounced in the original, and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Luke the physician. Colossians 4.4 tells us he was a doctor. Yeah, he's still with me. God provides, because Paul had some physical issues later in life, didn't he? You know, look what large handwriting you use. I know you would have torn out your own eyes, he tells the Galatians, to replace mine. He obviously had some major eye issues going on. So God leaves the physician with him, and Luke loved him and ministered to him to the very end. Sometimes God heals supernaturally, and sometimes he uses doctors and medicines, and you just got to be okay with that, you know? I think we should always pray about everyone who's got a major illness going on. We should always pray for those, of course. We should always ask for a miracle and believe in a miracle. And then sometimes God says no. And sometimes God gives us doctors. And sometimes he says, my grace is sufficient. We have to be willing to embrace any of those answers from a sovereign God who loves us. But Luke is with him. Get Mark, that is John Mark, the guy who had abandoned them on the first missionary journey. Well, I think John Mark has matured a lot since then, and he is helpful to Paul in the ministry. So get John Mark, bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. In other words, Paul says, I forgave a long time ago. You won't last in ministry if you don't forgive. He who loves much forgives much. Love covers a multitude of sins. Isn't that what it says? I read that somewhere. Love covers a multitude of sins, Peter says. Then he goes on to verse 12, says, I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak, my outer garment, my winter coat. It's chilly here in the dungeon, and it's winter, and I, that I left with Carpus at Troas, and, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. The scrolls were written on papyrus, the parchments written on animal skins. But what he's saying is, bring my Bible. Bring my Bible, man. I want to be in the Word of God, and I haven't had it. Bring those with you when you come. That's what the scrolls and the parchments were. I mean, Paul said, I, I need these things desperately. And then he goes on and tell warning this young man, Alexander the metal worker has done a great deal of harm to me. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he has strongly opposed our message. Paul didn't mind calling out people by name when appropriate. I don't think that should be the daily dissertation from the pulpit. But there is a time and place, perhaps, for calling out somebody by name, as Paul does here. Fortunately, I have not had to do that in ministry. I can't even remember the last time I did. I, that's not my place. God is the judge. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. They were afraid of being caught up in this with Paul. If he's going to be executed, they're probably going to execute anybody with Paul. We're all Christians. We're on this thing together, so it was easy for them to walk away, just as it was easy in times of Roman persecution to say, Caesar is Lord. And then want to go back to church, and they felt guilty and wanted to repent of their sins. And typically, those people would have to repent for two continuous years. And their repentance was seen by standing outside the church doors. And as church parishioners filed in for their Sunday Bible study, they would spit on them. And the guy had to be spit on for two years before he was deemed worthy of coming back into the church. I think you ought to examine a man's heart 
as opposed to how much spittle he's got on his head. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? Don't be quick to judge anybody. We all fall short. And if love covers a multitude of sins, we should practice that. Verse 17, but the Lord stood at my side. He gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Perhaps he's referring to Nero here. Perhaps he was referring to the fact that often Christians were fed to wild animals in the various arenas around Rome. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. It's about time for them to call all aboard and my ship will depart the port. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What optimism, what joy. Some might say unreasonable joy and optimism. You're about to die and you're all giddy with happiness. Yeah, you don't know where I'm going. I'm going to be with Jesus. I'm going to be in heaven. I'm never going to know any more aches or pains again. I'll never have. They don't serve Tylenol, extra strength, arthritis, pain formula up there. You don't need it. You know, it's going to be a whole, you know, Paul had faced his last moments of his life. Some have written that he was a miserable failure on, on some accounts. He was penniless, friendless, without valuable possessions, cold, without adequate clothing, destined for an imminent execution by a tyrannical ruler of Rome by beheading. And yet knowing the heavenly reward that was waiting for him, he wouldn't trade his place with anybody. I totally understand that. I'd rather be with the Lord than anywhere else. I, uh, when I turned 50, God gave me the most unusual birthday present I ever had. I had a heart attack right on my birthday. We were at the top of Pikes Peak, me and the family, uh, taking the train up there and had a heart attack at the top. But I didn't tell Kathy because I really wanted to finish my buffalo hot dog. They, they'd serve bison hot dogs up there, and I just wanted to finish. I just want to finish my hot dog. <laughs> And I'm eating my hot dog. And it's 20 minutes before the train gets back up there anyway, so what are you going to do? Might as well enjoy your hot dog. I did. <laughs> Come down and got into the hospital. Yep, yep, yep. You're having a heart attack. Oh, fine. They did the cat- cardiac catheterization. And, and then afterwards in my room, um, I flatlined. Got a, got a strip of EKG paper at the house. So flatlined about yay long where I was just deader than a mackerel. And when I woke up, I saw this ring of faces around me, and I thought, if this is heaven, how come they all look like doctors and nurses? I didn't even realize I was laying on my back, and here's this circle of of these faces all around me. I couldn't have told you my name. I didn't know where I was at, didn't know anything. But afterwards, I got to tell you, I was severely disappointed I wasn't in heaven. I wasn't in heaven. I was expecting to see angels surrounding me, not a bunch of doctors and nurses, and I thought, if this is heaven, I don't want to, I don't want to be here. <laughs> Can I tell you, you are immortal until God decides to take you home. Don't worry about anything that happens to you between now and then. God's got it. God's got it. Heart attacks, pff, what's that? Nothing. It's a vacation. You get to lay in bed for a few weeks. It's great. 
pain went away. God wasn't done. He's still molding me and making me. I haven't completed my process yet, and I want to walk with the rest of my life through by the power and strength of God's Holy Spirit. I want to do it with passion. I want to do it with zeal. I want to do it according to His Word. Your journey isn't over yet either. How do I know? You have a pulse. You're still here this side of the dirt. God's not done with you yet. But you need to keep on seeking and asking and knocking to find out what God wants to do with your life from this point forward. Don't worry about the health issues that show up between here and there. That just means the old cart is falling apart. And you expected something else? This is not, this is not you know, the story of Benjamin Willow where we're, we're born at old age and working our way backwards. It doesn't work like that. Doesn't matter how much iron you pump, <laughs> how many steroids you take or protein shakes. When you're 70, you're going to look just like me. Deal with it. Say, that's okay. I'm, you know, I'm in shape. Round is a shape, right? <laughs> there are more important things in life. I've got to tell you. To him be glory, honor, and praise forever. And he closes out in verse 19. Greet. Priscilla and Aquila, old friends of his, in the household of Anesphorus, Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best, please, to get here before winter. It was getting cold, and the winter he's referring to is the winter between 67 and 68 A.D. We know that because it was June 6th of the following year that Nero committed a forced suicide. His own troops, you know, at spear point said, you can, you can kill yourself or, or we can do it for you. Take your pick. And he committed suicide. So do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you as do Putin's Linus, Claudia, and all of the brothers. In other words, these are folks that are with him while he's in jail, encouraging him, blessing him. I'll tell you what, God will provide everybody you need right up to the very end. You need friends. You need family. You need old guys to show up from California and just bless you that you haven't seen in a long time. Thank you, Mick. I love you, buddy. You know, God knows what you need and when you need it. He doesn't, he doesn't move by happenstance. The circumstances, He guides, He directs. And you just got to say, I am good with that. It's a whitewater rafting trip. But you know who's in the back of the boat? Say it. Jesus. You got what to worry about? Nothing. What are you supposed to be anxious about? Oh, I'm so anxious. We don't say, we don't say scared or concerned or fearful because we know those are unchristian terms. So we'd like to spiritualize it. I'm concerned. I'm wor No, I'm really worried, fretful, and anxious, but we like to sound hyper-spiritual. Paul said, he told us what to be anxious for. Be anxious for what? Nothing. But it, make all things a matter of prayer and praise and worship. That's the thrust of what you and I do. So the last sentence in the original as it is here, the Lord be with your spirit, grace be with you. And the voice fell silent. The saint went on to his eternal reward. He had written half of the New Testament. God had used him in mighty, mighty ways. And though disappointments and discouragements had come and gone in his life, he didn't let those distract him from the ministry that God had set before him. Disappointment. And loneliness can affect even mature believers like, like Paul. And there will always be people that come and go in the ministry. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Keep a loose grip 
on the things of life. People will come and go. Circumstances will come and go. Corey Tenboom on her deathbed told my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, she says, I keep a loose grip on everything in life. That way it doesn't hurt so bad when the Lord has to pry my fingers off of them. You own what in this life? Nothing. You have control over what in this life? Nothing. Which is good. You're right there in the hands. It's not the hands of Allstate. Who cares about an insurance company? You're right there in the hands of your heavenly Father. He's got you. He's got you. Just take a deep breath. And remind yourself, Jesus got me. He holds the sheep, his sheep, in the palm of his hand. He's got you. Don't worry. Don't fret. Pray about everything. Worry about nothing. Forgive. Paul, as I look at this interaction where he says, send John Mark back to me, Paul was a forgiver. Be a forgiver. Don't hold grudges. People are just as fallible as we are. And Paul reminds me, even if I'm deserted by everybody else, am I really alone? He says, Christ stood with me. Jesus was right there. What a comfort it is where we've got the promise of Jesus. Then he says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I'll be in the midst of them. So he's with us every time we come together to worship him and seek his face. He's right here. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as the praise band comes up. And we're going to close in a song of victory because Jesus died to give us victory. By his cross, he triumphed over the enemies that we face in this life. We're to worry about absolutely nothing. Praise Him in everything.